Welcome, I'm Dr. Tracy A. Benson, and today we are recording this episode of Research to Practice, the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute podcast in Harvard Studios. Our honored guest is a leader, resistor, educator, and friend, Harvard Graduate School of Education professor, Dr. V. Dr. V, thank you so much for being Dr. Benson. second guest on our podcast, um, and I'm just so blessed and honored that you've taken time before your class, in between your hectic schedule, to drive out here and sit and have a conversation with me about your work, what you do, who you are, for our podcast, for the listeners. Thanks for having me. So I met Dr. V. I remember we were in New York. I don't know why Cesar and I were in New York. So Dr. Cesar Cruz and I were in New York. And he was like, I have this great friend uh, that I'd like you to meet. She'd be great for teaching ethnic studies. I want you to meet her. And it was like dark. It was at night. And you came, and you had like an, an, an a velour pink sweatsuit. Because I remember this. You just, because you look like you're like a New Yorker. And you came out of nowhere. And you're like, hey, I'm like, oh, is this a person? Um, and we sat, we chopped it up for maybe like an hour, and then it was over. And that was back in 2000 and maybe 14. Yeah, I was 14. But I'm so, so honored that to have met you then and that we're here now, a number of years later, to talk about your work. So if you wouldn't mind for the listeners just introducing yourself, who you are, you know, as far back as you'd like to go, like who is Dr. V? Wow. Um, well, I am Christina. I am Dr. V. I am Miss V. Uh, v. I'm also Xiaomei. It's my middle name, um, which means the winter blossom because I was born in December. I'm Chinese and Mexican, and that's uh, my last name, right? So that's who I am, born and raised in the Bay Area. Hella proud of that. Rep it all day, every day. That's my favorite hashtag, <laughs> repping the Bay on Affian Way. <laughs> and I'm currently a lecturer uh, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, came in as the director of the teacher education program. Um, maybe we'll get into a little bit more of that uh, later on, why I'm no longer doing that, um, but still very much in teacher education. Um, also teach uh, a course on healing-centered engagement, um, which is based on Dr. Sean Jenwright's framework. That's what I do here. What else should I mention? That's great. Now, that's a wonderful introduction. I learned some new things, too. Yes. I think for our listeners, it, it would do good to, for them to understand, like, you have multiple degrees in ethnic studies. You teach ethnic studies. You understand the value of ethnic studies. And not everyone in the field does in education in, in K-12 or in higher ed. And so can you talk about why, what drew you to ethnic studies? Why ethnic studies? And then why is it important for folks in, in, in the field to understand that children need this? Um, Dr. Allison Titiangu Kubales, who's one of the mama bears of our ethnic studies movements, uh, asked us at the last Free Minds, Free People conference in 2021, how did you fall in love with ethnic studies? So when I think about choice, there's also this element of like, when you're thinking about oppression, how much choice, right, then is there when you are offered, right, a path towards liberation? And so that's the role that ethnic study has played in my life. Ethnic studies found me, or chose me, uh, in high school. So up until 11th grade, I had never had a course where I saw truly like myself, struggles of my community, my ancestry reflected, you know, in, in, in deep ways. If Chinese and Mexican people were mentioned, that's what they were, they were mentioned or treated in really superficial ways. It wasn't until I took my first um, 
Well, first began in a history class, uh, Mr. Dwyer's classroom, who was the ethnic studies teacher. And I'll never forget it. But that was the first time in my entire life. Like, I felt it. You know, people have described it as like a fire is lit. So I'd say that was, when you say choice, I'm like, mm, I don't know how much of it was a choice, so much as like a fire was lit, you know, mm-hmm. or agency that I always had was activated, right? Because agency isn't something we give. Mm-hmm. Something that is very central to ethnic studies, um, but is something that ha- is wrapped up in the savior complex in a lot of education, mm-hmm. right? Oh, right. let's give our kids agency. Mm-hmm. The kids have it. Our right. job is to activate it. And mm-hmm. so that's what Dwyer did for me. Activated, activated my critical consciousness, mm-hmm. like, and then fed it. I, I began to truly understand, one, how oppression works which is then allows you to begin to understand then how liberation is needed and how it can be, how you can design a world, right? That, so that was, that fundamentally like changed the course of my life. I say that, I was like, Mr. Dwyer opened the door to the Garden of Ethnic Studies. I've been in this garden nurturing, you know, seeds and dreams of freedom ever since. Yeah, let me ask you about that, right? Because... I heard you say very explicitly that it was not until 11th grade, yeah. right? And a lot of people of color experience very intense erasure, mm-hmm. right? We're always with relation to white communities. We're mentioned, but always with relation to. Mm-hmm. And so if you, you're thinking about what is an appropriate education for folks like us who are not in the, reg- the regular curriculum, when, when, how soon is... How soon is appropriate? Because folks have that question. Like, 11th grade sounded appropriate because people are ready. I don't believe that. So when, when should it start? When should this awakening be for kids of color? The moment children enter social settings where there are adults. So it could be, you know, at the, the YMCA. It could be, at, like, I think it, could, it can and should be, right, everywhere, not just in. Because ethnic studies. Um, is more than just actually about curriculum and pedagogy. But I know that since we're in the field of education, which is also right part of the problem, the way we've compartmentalized uh, this society, um, because when you say, right, us and the regular curriculum, there's nothing regular about the way the curriculum works, and we know that too. Um, And so part of that is to, you know, to interrupt it as early as possible. And there's so much, there's so many resources uh, for ethnic studies, for pre-K all the way through PhDK, whatever you want to call, mm-hmm. right? Right. Like it, there it it exists, but what are then the barriers or the gaslighting, right? The intellectual gaslighting that occurs that convinces um, anybody, not us, but just anybody that mm-hmm. to determine who's ready for what, uh, because. What is it that young people see every day anyways, right? And so that, for me, I saw so much. I just wasn't able to make sense. So ethnic studies offers a very explicit lens, right? It isn't isn't just the content of people of color, Mm -hmm. right? It's a lens. It's a way of being a framework Mm -hmm. um, that genuinely centers, right? Our, our lived experiences, our lives, our humanity, and, and reminds us, right, firmly mm-hmm. of our dignity. 
because um, we currently live and move through a system of schooling and a world that actively tells us otherwise through erasure, right? right? Through normalized um, curriculum and normalizes white supremacy and patriarchy, right? Heterosexism, like we, we, these, we see young people only having two bathrooms to choose from. That isn't natural. It's natural in one worldview, right? So, when we, so it's also, right, um, an epistemological stance that allows us to read the world, right? Draw, we draw very heavily in ethnic studies, right, from also the works, right? Bell Hooks, Bell Freddy, reading. Not, it's not just reading the books. It's reading the world. Right. Um, and young people do that so beautifully, oftentimes, right, better than adults do. Most of the time, let's be honest, most of the time. Uh-huh. And there are, there are, right, gifts that adults can offer and gifts that young people can offer. But because of adultism, that also impedes, right? right. That blocks the opportunities to engage in the actual dialogues, um, learning experiences, unlearning experiences that can take place on a kindergarten rug. The books that we put, the questions that we ask. It's really, right, it's about problem posing. It's about asking, right, leaving. That's what I said on Tuesday in class. I was like, you know, I also hope that, you know, you leave often with more questions than answers. I want to, I want to ask about that again, like, like doubling down on this idea that adults are in the way. Because as a part of my work, what I used to do a while ago in, in the Anti-Racist Leadership Institute, I would go into schools and have conversation with, about race with kindergartners. And I'd have the teachers sent stand around the outside and they're sweating, you know, you got these white women sweating and like, oh, what? You can't, they can't, can't talk about race. And I just pose the question and they know a whole lot, right? And they're so excited to talk about it because I'm not in their way. And so for the teacher that's afraid, because, they, you know, it, it could be a teacher from, you know, a teacher that has a mainstream identity, a teacher that does not have a mainstream, a teacher of color, that our teacher education process does not equip us, even if we have the will to do it, how do you even start to chip away at that through your experience in teacher education? So how did you change the narrative and change the process of learning for teachers that you're responsible for preparing to, to incorporate more of the ethnic studies tenets? It works differently for, I think, every teacher and teacher ed program, but it is, right, our work as educators is to meet our students where they are, struggle beside them, maybe offer guide, sometimes offer guidance, also sometimes offer solidarity support to where they could be, you know, by in the exchange, the exchange of knowledge, ideas, lived experiences. Um, and so part of that for me was bringing, um, as a teacher educator, bringing, right, my lived experiences um, as, as an educator um, as an assistant principal, pairing that, right, with what's in the books, um, pairing that with the data, um, nuancing it, and centering counter-narratives, which is an act of resistance. When you center, right, when you actively interrupt the dominant structure, the dominant group, when you interrupt whiteness in teacher education, right? Brie Pacawa wrote, a book about it, right? Mm-hmm. Reading, writing, and racism, disrupting whiteness in teacher education. And I was one of the teacher educators that was profiled in it. Mm-hmm. So 
Harvard Graduate School of Education was named as the home of a racial justice teacher education program. You brought that in. It is not anymore. Mm. It is not anymore. Um, But in Brie Pickhower's book, you can can actually read how it's done Mm. because we were pro. So it happens on a number of levels. That's why that's why it took me so long to answer because I'm like, ooh, actually there's not there's it's just like oppression operates at multiple levels, right? Mm-hmm. At the ideological, institutional, interpersonal, and internalized. How do you approach it? You have to approach it teaching about all that, but you have to think about liberation all those levels. What is in what does internal liberation look like? What does interpersonal liberation look like? What does institution what is it can you institutionalize liberation? What does it mean? Or is it right? Or is it the destruction, right, of harmful institutions or harmful practices and policies and replacing them with human centered, right? Um, humanizing institutions. And what does it mean, right? Ideologically, what does it mean to free your mind? What does it mean to liberate your mind, mm-hmm. actually? Um, and that is. The fundamental, right, project of ethnic studies, right, is freedom. Mm-hmm. So do folks do folks understand that coming in? Because, you know, folks come into the program, you know, either master's program or the doctoral program. They see ethnic studies in the, you know, in the timetable. They sign up for it. Um, how do you see the transformation or not transformation, right? Because some folks come in and it's too much cognitive dissonance. Like, I cannot absorb what's going on in this little little space mm-hmm. but for other folks they come in like this is what i've been waiting for and so yes. what do you feel that folks expect coming in and then what do you think they actually get when they arrive completely different on all fronts different students like no group of 20 50 120 students all expect the same thing coming in Every group of 20, 50, 120, don't all get leave with the same thing either. Um, and that's right part of the problem. This is part of what, you know, the problem with a lot of education reform movements. It's part of, right, what Dr. Love just recently has written about. Incredible new book, right, Punish for Dreaming. This is part of the problem. It's like the metrics even by which we even think about learning outcomes, as if we all come in the exact same, right? That's not how, that's not how education, that's not how life works. That's not intersection, that's not an intersectional, right, like approach. So just in terms of thinking about that, um, it very, it varies depending on what they were doing right before they were in the class, right? Not right before, what they were doing in life. So I have some students who come in with some exposure Mm-hmm. right, to previous ethnic studies classes, they show up very differently than somebody who has no idea what ethnic studies is. Now, this was earlier on, right? Since the, the movement has gained more traction, we're seeing it, right, in more schools, um, legislation, right, in California, which also is has received, right, incredible backlash. And so... That impacts also how um, students come in because of where they're getting their information, right? How much 
Have they actually read versus scrolled? That's something. So all of these things, right, I think is deeply complicated in terms of then my approach. My approach is the same that it's been since I started teaching seventh grade, um, eighth grade on 98th Ave in mm. Deep East Oakland at Elmhurst. Is to start with the stories. And my ethnic studies professor at UC Berkeley, he reminded me that when I came here and I was in the teacher ed program, right after I majored in ethnic studies at UC Berkeley, which was pretty, can you imagine 21 year old V showing up after majoring in ethnic studies at Berkeley and showing up at Harvard? <laughs> I was off the chain. That's the other piece, too, is just that's just any educator. I always make, I try to never forget what it felt like to be right? And a master's student on this campus. That's something that that's something I think I bring special to this job here at Harvard is mm -hmm. I was a student of color here. Right. You know, so that is something unique, just like teaching in Oakland. Like I grew up in the Bay. I went to high school down the street. I kicked it in Oakland. Like I went to festival at the lake. So that brings something. I'm just saying like that, 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 um, it brings us. It brings something extra, right, to the work of right. of, of teaching and learning. Um, it's bringing in all of those, like sharing those parts of my story, right? Sharing that I went here too, um, which is important, uh, unfortunately, for um, a lot of white students who continue to question my credentials. That's happened multiple times. This is the third Ivy League where I've taught. Um, at every single Ivy League, I have been questioned. Um, for my credentials, it's unfortunately one of the I wish I could say I go by Dr. V off of pride, but part of it is also protection. Absolutely. Right? Um, Absolutely. So the approach has to always be start with the stories. Mm -hmm. When I came here and I was struggling and suffering in my teacher program because it felt very incongruent in my body. Mm -hmm. Even I didn't have I didn't have that language. I, don't, I wasn't speaking about it then, but I knew. I knew like this it was off, and I remember wanting to quit and reaching out to Professor Takaki. And he was like, just remember to start with their stories, your students, and, like, always start there. Um, so that's always where I start. We start with acrostic poems. You know, write your name and include, you know, vertically and write a po acrostic poem about yourself, incorporating aspects of, you know, your identity, your cultural autobiography. That's it. Your likes, dislikes. You know that that's quite the. I don't want to call it a diagnostic, right? It's because mm -hmm. it's not a. It's not an assessment. Well, no, it is a diagnostic. It's not an assessment, but it mm -hmm. is a diagnostic of sorts. It allows me, as an educator, to just get a sense, of of. Not what it is you know. You get a little bit of that from acrostic poems. But you get a sense of who is in the room. What are, you know, you do get a sense you, of how people identify, what comes up first in identity, and that isn't necessarily an insight into how they were raised. It could be just how, what have they been exposed to? What, what has the environment, how much of this is internal, how much of it was external, how much, you know, this is what we look at in ethnic studies, the various aspects of our identity. How much of it did we choose? How much of it was chosen for us? When we study, right, racial formation theory, racialization, mm -hmm. understand the difference between a noun and a verb, you know, the complexity of how racism works, the complexity, right, of how ableism works. You can't just throw these terms around and then, because that's how we end up, right, in, right. In, with what we're seeing now, right? 
very reductive um, misappropriations of deeply violent systems that are genuinely in real time harming, right, babies in our classrooms, right? We think about who are the young people who are the most impacted, the most underserved, the most harmed by school systems currently through the curriculum, right, Um, through the pedagogy, through the systems and policies, right? We're, we are in a moment, right, where black children are being suspended and, and prevented from graduation mm-hmm. for the way they wear their hair. Right. And this is, right, also alongside in, in states that have passed the Crown Act. Right. And we've and so ethnic studies. And so right, we talk about that. We've talked about that. And as we're looking at the roots of anti-blackness, we're also looking at the Crown Act and making like what is the proximity and distance between 1680 and 2023? You can't do that on day one. You can't do that in a, in a diverse, in a racially right, diverse classroom. By and large, mostly economically diverse for the most part, but it is Harvard, right? So it's different. It's different teaching, and it's clear, it's very different teaching ethnic studies at Harvard than teaching at, at San Francisco State University in the College right. of Ethnic Studies than teaching it at Castlemont High School in Deep East Oakland. And I've taught ethnic studies at all these places, right? Than teaching it at even Teachers College in New York or bringing it into a place like Hunter College, right? right. Just across town from each other and just a few trains, but it's different when you're at right. Most Ivy Leagues have students who are literally coming from every all over the world versus right. A lot of our state college, state institutions is who's there. So ethnic studies has to always then be context specific. So before I can even get there, I have to know who's in the room. Mm-hmm. How do you identify? Because that's going to give me some insight into how I can meet you where you are. And how I can guide you towards like what types of resources and to remind them also on day one, the syllabus is, is, is a, is, is a very clear embodiment enactment of my background, my expertise, my lived experiences, right? It's like an ongoing joke that my syllabus, it has shifted. I've been on the East Coast for 10 years now, but it's a pretty West Coast leanings, right? It's because that was where I was. That's where I got my degrees in ethnic studies, UC Berkeley right, undergrad, and then I got my master's in ethnic studies at San Francisco State, right, Mm -hmm. at the first college of ethnic studies, right, born out of the longest student strike in United States history. And I specifically chose to go there after I went to Harvard because Harvard didn't do it for me. It didn't. Ethnic studies did. So I was like, no, I need to go back to where I know I'm going to get the actual, the actual knowledge, the tools, the skill sets, the epistemologies that will allow me to serve and be in solidarity with my students and my community in the ways that Harvard did not. Let's go there. All right. We're, I wanted to go here. Let's, let's get there because I want to get to the racial healing work you do. But before that, I think is a good segue to um, talk about the um, sort of Bettina Love's work, the kind of folks who at, at Harvard, you know, the folks that the, the archetype of people who apply to this type of pro- these type of programs who end up in your classrooms from, you know, different walks of life. But a lot of folks come from this sort of sco- schooling and carceral state mentality, right? They come from 
Teacher America. They come from the charter world. They come from uh, this saviorism, you know, saviorism as their core. And I think they're coming to ethnic, ethnic studies to sort of ratify, to sort of uh, to reinforce their goodness, which is that's not what ethnic studies is about. And so once you get into this space of 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 really radically challenging what people have come to believe who they are as educators, it becomes a threat. Yes. It becomes a threat to the institution. And I want to sort of get into the personal behind this because myself as an academic, I was an academic for four and a half years. And um, I taught all of my courses, the law course, the policy course, the, the supervision of instruction course from anti-racist lens. The epistemology of the foundation was anti-racism. That was a threat to my department. That was a threat to my colleagues because students were being woke. And they was bleeding out and get into their classes. And they're like, where'd you learn this? I learned it from Dr. Benson. So I became a threat. And so we're folks who want to get on this train, because I hope folks listen to this be like, I want to do ethics studies. I want to get on this. I want to sort of incorporate it into my epistemology of how I teach my courses. Can you sort of get into why this is such a threat to a place like Harvard and teacher education programs um, when we bring this type of pedagogy to our work? Yes, I can. We have to focus on liberation if we're if we're in the work of eradicating it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I had to understand the design, the under the histories of my oppression, the oppression of, of my peers, my community, to truly desire and begin to dream of my liberation. You can't, you know, you can't. There, there, there is. It's kind of like the relationship between trauma and healing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like we've pathologized trauma when. It actually there's there there are there's the pain, but there's also wisdom in our wounds, and that is also central, right? That's that's very central to anti-racist work, essential to ethnic studies work, because it is ultimately healing the trauma of colonialism, of racism, right, of white supremacy. That's the threat. Is equipping, you know, when you think about. Anti-literacy, you know, laws. Mm-hmm. When we take it back, when we look at just the, the roots of um, white supremacy in this project, right, this settler colonial project that we refer to as the United States, this, look at where we are. You know, this Harvard, <laughs> you know, they're, you know, we're enslaved Africans on this campus as, you know, that is woven into the fabric of this place. And you're talking about um, not just a class, right, but uh, a space that is unapologetically committed to dissecting, right? That's social science, the difference between us and then the, what do you even call it, right? Giving us the social science versus science is like, right, Asian-American and Black-American, right? It's, it's like it, it, we're still marginalized even by the ways we identify. And so we become extras, electives, mm. right? We're elective Absolutely. citizens. We're elective humans. We're disposable. Mm. Most things, right? This is how human disposability and a, a, a study that is dedicated to understanding that design, we're... And we have to be careful, right? Where there is, um, where there is accountability, there's we have the evidence. 
and the evidence is damning. Mm-hmm. And you're studying. We have the receipts. I put the receipts in front of students. That's primary source analysis. And that, that ultimately, right, often leads people to recognize that harmful institutions and practices need to be destroyed. They need to be abolished, right? Abolition is deeply rooted in healing. That's it, like that, but that's not what dominant mainstream rhetoric will have you thinking in the same ways that dominant mainstream media and history textbooks completely, right, distort the history of the Black Panther Party. Only showing the, only showing the pictures, um, right, with Huey holding the gun, but not showing them passing out food and not talking about how the U.S. government completely co-opted the free breakfast program. And now how many schools free and reduced lunch, right? Mm-hmm. Like we want to talk about a distortion. You're talking about a, 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 a study that is dedicated to naming all of those truths. Like it's exposing, right? It's exposing the very, the very foundation upon which these institutions were built that they're dependent on mm-hmm. to take it away. And that is, that is the goal, right? Is, and it's not to blow up and destroy with it. No, it's to dismantle with the very purpose. That's why I say that's why the problem with diversity, equity, inclusion, I've never liked that because I'm like, I include it because it, it's, it's very paternalistic, right? It's very condescending to be like, I want to, you know, make, make sure I'm including you. In what? In what? What's there? What's what, there what is that? Any- like, I'm not interested in being included. In something, a space, a community, uh, an institution that doesn't honor my humanity. Right. I'm interested in transforming it, eradicating it, dismantling it, and ensuring that what does exist genuinely honors the lived experiences, the ancestry, the humanity of every participant, every participant. So part of also the threat is because it's a lot of misinformation, right? Rhetoric that um, and I think studies is anti-white. Now, let's be clear. It's anti-white supremacy. There's a difference. It's anti-whiteness. That is part of that's the roots of the strike at San Francisco State. It was down with whiteness, right? White students were absolutely on the front lines in solidarity with the Third World Liberation Front, with the Black Student Union, right? With the SWANA, like communities who were also... Uh, engaging in their struggles, right, against colonialism on a global scale. That's why it was Third World Liberation Front, because Third World in the 60s had a different connotation than what it has, right, in the mm-hmm. in the in 2023. All of these pieces, right, when you're now then talking about the eradication, right, of colonialism and everything that it has, everything it has um, caused across generations, we talk about healing from that. What that actually means is that we really are fully realized human beings and that we are in solidarity and community with each other. But the project of colonialism and white supremacy was the exact opposite, right? There's a project of ethnic cleansing, genocide. It's, again, what we are currently seeing right now, what we are up against, what we're about, what, we, what we're trying to stop, what we need to stop from happening. It's happened right Mm -hmm. before and you think about how it's happened and it's been tied to also the project of racialization when we talk about a U.S. context, which is why when you have, you know, all that transpired in World War II, which Mm -hmm. is also right, deeply connected. 
is understanding and making those connections, right? It, 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 it threatens the project of divide and conquer that created the conditions, right, that we are trying to navigate and make sense of in the first place. Ethnic studies is unapologetically dedicated, right, to what, like, solidarity, like, right, as a verb, not, you know, an intellectual, right. you know, study or project. And and that's why I said it's always bigger than, and that's something that one of my other important mentors from San Francisco State taught me, Jason Ferreira. He's mm-hmm. always reminded me. He's like, I know, I know you the teacher, teacher education. Remember, Christina, he's one of people calls me Christina. Mm-hmm. Um, he's it, like, ethnic studies is bigger. It was always bigger than a syllabus. Right. And he's right. He's drawing right from the genius. Right. The organizing, you know, guidance, the our North Star of Ella Baker mm. from her speech. Right. Bigger than a hamburger. Right. The lunch counter sentence was always bigger than was always bigger than a hamburger. Right. It was about freedom. It was about freedom. Mm. And so when it's bigger than a syllabus, it's more than just about we're not just learning for the sake of them becoming other armchair activists and talking head intellectuals. No, ethnic studies was very clear from the beginning that ed- that if in the space of academies mm-hmm. or institutions, it better be about tied to community action. And so a lot of ethnic studies programs have been co- have lost that. Like they just stay and live in the ivory tower and in the institution. And it's actually not tied to its original purpose, which was community action, which was, you know, the students at SF State then also engaging in organizing, protecting the elders, right? And the I-Hotel strike. That was ethnic studies. So it was like, right, that wasn't just about what are we teaching classrooms? It was like, no, nah. you know, these elders are being evicted, right? It, it, was, it was about um, ICE raids, You're not just talking and learning, right? But school becomes a place to understand why ICE raids are occurring, understand the militarization of the border. Because if you only rely on public, what is, which is also controlled by, right, a few, because we're also in a capitalist situation, you know, that that's going to, that is what's driving, right? That's how hegemony works, right? That how, how do you get, how do you get a, a, a general public of human beings to buy into and continue to perpetuate the violence that is also then preventing their own collective healing from historical and intergenerational trauma that they carry in their bodies that's been passed down by their ancestors. Resma Menachem, another one of our books, right? And Ethnic Studies writes very clearly about that, right? That this project of colonialism, it's some, it's not, I'm, I don't mean to oversimplify, but understanding European colonialism is also about understanding that trauma and Western specifically, right? that the, a lot of the folks who led the invasions of the violent, right, invasion of, of Ireland, they were recruited, right, Walter Raleigh, to, to lead the invasion of the Americas. And so you had then that trauma, that dirty pain, the type of torture, talk about beheading, like, uh, think about also Europe during the Middle Ages, Right. And the again, extreme violence pogroms that were happening in Europe, right. that there are deep impacts to both the victims and perpetrators of violence. Right. Those are the folks with all that unmetabolized, unhealed trauma, all that dirty pain that are the founders. Right. right. The descendants. 
and then built systems and powers that to protect that. Those same descendants, right, are the ones right, that, we look that, are, that are threatened by ethnic studies because it threatens to expose, right, the truths, um, right? It becomes, you know, that it's um, one of my close friends, Samora, I appreciated like how he described how it must feel. He mentioned, I, I'd like to get your take on this too, because I think this is also wise. Because he, this is because he also named what I do as a threat, but in a very different way. But y'all are coming from the same place. I never came here for Harvard. Never came here thinking I'd stay. Like I'm not here for Harvard. I'm here for the movement of it. I came because you all asked me to. You all asked me to come teach ethnic mm-hmm. studies. I'm not committed to. I'm committed to the movement of ethnic studies, right? Because I'm accountable to my community. I'm accountable to our babies. That's who I do this for. So I wake and breathe for. I think about my students from Elmerson Castle Mall. They, they're the reason they are allowing me to, to wake and breathe to do this work every single day. I'm not accountable. I don't feel accountable to this institution. But I work with a bunch of people who do. Um, the way that Samora, I just appreciate it. He's like, that's got to be hard. He's like, when a lot of, he's like, not everybody, right? But a lot of people we work with, it's like they're holding this up. Because that's all your st- well, it came because I said I actually work with a lot of really stupid people. He's like, real. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's like, then how or why are they there? I'm like, mm. well, legacies of <laughs> privilege, legacies of disproportionate hiring practices, um, admissions. Like you know, I mean, let's think about how academia, the path towards academia, tracking schools, right. all of that right. works. Kaplan, like it, the entire. Right, schooling and complex. He's like, you worked your ass off. You were always smart. Like you worked your ass. You got there. He's like, it had to be hard to get there and then look around and see that and be like, I ain't holding this shit up. Not. He's like, one. He's like, it had to be hard for you, right, to come in. And I appreciate. Like I hadn't felt. I hadn't experienced like that conversation, that empathy with somebody I grew up with. Um. With somebody right who who calls me Christina, so you don't got time to hold up, you know, a badge um, of of white supremacy, uh, and that's a struggle. Like being in one of the original thirteen British colonies, like you feel the residue, feel the residue of that here. It shows up differently, just like parts of the South, right? Southern United. You feel, there's because the histories are passed down. It's in the air. It's in the ethos, right? It lives and breathes in our bodies. It it surrounds us. It's also tied to the planet. Ethnic studies is one of many, right, approaches to an education that dares to be different, that dares to say, like, there is, there's like, there's another world is absolutely possible. Yeah, let me let me ask you that, right? Because a lot of the folks who are going to be listening to us, you just gave us a master class. I'm sure folks are going to rewind. What did she say again? Let me write that down. What did she say again? Let me write that down. You can't fly in a Dr. V to school folks to the game everywhere. But I know through our work that folks are hungry to know where to start, right? Because it's so, I mean, you went from, you know, history of colonialism to, to Ireland to like the founding fathers to like our, our, our decaying morals, you know, right? And it sounds very, very all-encompassing in a way that I could see my, uh, my you know, fourth-grade teacher sitting down like, okay, 
I want to do this, but what do I do for? I'm just inspired by the podcast. Listen to Dr. V. What, where, where do we go? Where, where, where does where does the fourth grade teacher who wants to get him? Where do they go? What do they do? Bounce a ball. Okay. <laughs> this is um how, right? Our ancestor, right? Bob Moses, how he responded to a question. Charles Payne was writing right his book. Um, got the light of freedom. He's asking how do you, how do you, start a movement? Because let's be clear, folks are interested in ethnic studies. It ain't just a curriculum. It's not just a pedagogy. That's important, right? That's the, there's the technical aspects that are important. Something else, right? Drawing from Dr. Shonjin Wright's work, technical and relational pedagogy, transactional versus transformative. That is deep work that takes a lifetime. And Bob Moses responded to the question, I start a movement, you bounce a ball. It begins with, right, you got to learn to dribble before you can, you know, go into a park and say, yeah, let's just get a game. You know, you have to learn. Like, you have to start. So recognizing that, like, you can't say, oh, I want to play basketball and now I'm going to be Steph Curry. You, how much time you spend outside the classroom and the school? How much time you spend in the communities where the young people where you teach come from? Right. We have a lot of teachers who know a ton about the content and the, what they're tasked to teach, hardly anything about the communities in which they teach and the histories of those communities. So ethnic studies, first and foremost, it's about it's context specific. Mm-hmm. It's context specific, but, you know, situated also right in a, in a broader like socio historical context. It's just always remembering that is starting with who's in the room. I've had teachers say like, oh, but it's so much. I can't possibly learn all of that. It's like, no, well, let's start with what you do know. And then let's start with interrogating what you know, right? That's something I also, Professor Takaki's class in undergrad. First question he asked, he says, epistemological question. How do you know that you know what you know? Every teacher needs to ask himself that. How do you know that you know what you know? Even right now, even on Tuesday, that student's coming in. I could feel it. It was like, tell us what to, I don't. I said, if, if you haven't thought about this, if this is the first time you're thinking about it, you need to sit with that for a moment and know that you're never going to catch up. You don't know what you don't know. It's one of the most powerful things teachers could say, I don't know. But let's find out. Let's figure it out. Let's learn. Let's learn together, right? This fear. What is it you're afraid of? What is it you're afraid of? Are you afraid of actual danger to your body? Are you afraid of looking a certain way? Are you afraid of perception? Because we do live, right? In, in, in the United States in that way. So I think it starts with checking in with yourself and your sources of knowledge and ways of being in the world. It has to start there with a self-interrogation because then that allows you to begin to curate with a new lens. It just, it, it's not, you're not, you actually don't have to change everything you're doing. You need to change how, you need to think about how are you, how are you doing it? It's not just what you teach, it's how you teach it. And importantly, why? Because I was like, but why, like, are you committed to justice? And hearing things like, my mom, you know, I named you. I named you, you know, giving, I gave you a Chinese name, which means, you know, a heart bigger than the sky because I want you to love beyond just yourself, right? That, that coupled with um, knowledge, right? Precious knowledge, that is is where transformation can truly occur. We're not going to think our way out of oppression. What is your relationship to what you're teaching? 
That's why we ask anything. So what's your relationship to the history that we're teaching? What is the relationship of your ancestors? Because that's a hard question too, right? In a place like it's hard. It's like there's not, you got to face that because, and then what does that bring up in your body? All right, what makes your, what type of learning or conversations or interactions with students cause your muscles to constrict? And when do you feel settled and relaxed? When is it, what are your ideas around control? Just even calling it classroom management versus thinking about, right, building a healthy classroom ecosystem. It's, it's all in your approach. Like, it just begins with the questions. To just start questioning. That's the first thing that ethnic studies is about. It's like, let's take a pause from reading that we got to, you know, read the word. But we also got to then read the world. Again, it's not a metaphor. It's not just an, it's a verb. What does it mean to actually enact a change that honors humanity through the curriculum that you teach, through the interactions, through the way you interact with your students? their families? How do you perceive? How many families, you know, do you know in your classrooms? How many and why not? And don't, and if you, and if you have, and if you, and recognize when you're deflecting or giving an excuse, right? Mm -hmm. What is the voice that guides you? We have our conscience. For those, you know, we have our ancestors, but there's also, right, the voice of the voice, different voices of oppression, the voices of white supremacy. I say that all the time, that mm. you have to recognize when is it the voice of white supremacy? When is it your voice? And when is it the voice of white supremacy disguising itself as your voice to tell you what to do? What guides your, what is it that guides every curricular and pedagogical decision you make? Mm. What is the primary influence? How much are you exercising the agency you've always had? Mm. You know, and, and it starts with, again, what is it you already know? What are you passionate about? Who are you? Do the kids know who you are? Like, have you allowed yourself? Have you allowed your full humanity to show up in a classroom? You know, are we as vulnerable and vulnerageous in front of our students as we ask them to be? We ask students to write a lot of personal and we ask them to engage in like pretty scary tasks. Every assignment that I've ever given students, oh man, I make myself do it. Were the ways in which your humanity was affirmed, denied, assaulted, loved, lifted up? And what are the ways your curriculum and your pedagogy and your classroom, what's on your walls, is doing it now? That's a really important starting place. Mm -hmm. If I may say one thing yes. about anti-racism, which is so deeply important to our work, is to make sure we're also not naming what we don't want, right? Right. Which is not that's not all what anti-racism is. But there are folks that similarly, right, jump on. Oh, I want to be anti-racist. OK, so you want the absence of racism. What do you want instead? That's sometimes the next step. Right. The right. other part of the work that is missing is we and that's and that is also just, a, you know, an outcome of of right in many ways our trauma response is like we have to begin by eradicating being clear we have to be just as clear just like with you know young people in schools spend a lot of time telling them what to not do instead of offering models or visions what it can be that's why it's like instead of saying you know warnings which is what we use in ladders of discipline carceral logic what danger actually lies ahead no it's opportunities and so i just encourage folks to also think about like who are dedicated right listening to 
you're dedicated to the to the work of of eradicating right race racism anti-racism right against it what are you for so you're saying anti you're taking if you if you identify as anti-racist you're taking a firm stand against racism what do you stand for and do you know what that looks like do you know what that world do you have an imagining and what is your what is your place in it and and what is what then that is i think an, an important right prerequisite for engaging right in genuine acts of solidarity in your everyday life because that is that's also central to like i think really doing this work um in a way that is in service right of restoring our our collective humanity awesome Dr. V, 9886 on Instagram. <laughs> For those Harvard alum come to ALCC this year, it's going to be fire. I'm going to be yeah. there. Dr. V will be there. And so this has been a great conversation. Thank you for being our second guest here. Thank you for having me. Love you. <laughs> Love you too, girl. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute podcast. Remember, the fight against racism starts with each and every one of us. Together, we can create inclusive environments in our schools that celebrate diversity and empower all students. For more information, visit our website at antiracisminstitute.com and subscribe to our channel. Join us next time as we continue to shine a light on the champions of change. Stay inspired, committed, and let's make a difference together.